1981, the year I was born and the start of the millennial generation. This is a podcast for the next generation of venture capitalists. I'm your host, Elizabeth Krauss, and I'm a founding partner at MergeLane. MergeLane invests in exceptional pre-seed to Series A startups and early stage venture capital funds. And because we've seen the data, we only invest in opportunities led by at least one female leader. I love asking questions, and as an emerging manager, I've had more than enough of them. I started this podcast to find some answers. Enjoy the episode. Hey, all Thanks for joining us. I've been a bit out of touch the past few months, so I thought I'd start with just a quick life update, both because I always enjoy hearing what's happening in all of your worlds, and also because I think my life is indicative of some of the broader trends that we're seeing as we emerge out of this pandemic. I've been spending a bit more time than usual working with our portfolio. Counterintuitively, the pandemic has created a more favorable market for startups to raise capital and for founders to sell their companies. And especially in the past few weeks, I've been helping some of our companies field some unsolicited but pretty interesting acquisition inquiries. And I'd be curious to hear whether any of you are seeing similar trends. The pandemic has also made the bolder real estate market go a bit bonkers. So we made an impromptu decision to put our house on the market a couple of weeks ago and got two offers over asking price within 24 hours and sold the house for twice as much as we paid for it six years ago. We had planned to put the house on the market in the fall because we're building a house in Helena, Montana. My husband's from there, but I've never wanted to move there because it isn't exactly a venture capital hub and it's pretty cold there in the winter. But even before the pandemic, my husband and I started doing more business remotely. And I've spent the past few winters living in my parents' basement in Vail, Colorado, because, well, I love to ski. And I figured out that Vail is a great place to source venture capital LPs and other connections for our portfolio. So we've decided that this uh, Vail-Helena combination would work well for us. But we haven't even broken ground on our house yet, so we're homeless for the foreseeable future, but hopefully it'll all be worth it. So I have a lot to be grateful for, and I'm still struggling with pandemic-induced anxiety and germophobia, and I'm trying not to let that distract me, but working through that and found that skiing is the perfect anxiety antidote for me. So I've spent a fair amount of time doing that this winter. Uh, managed to source two board members, an acquisition offer, and a dozen other helpful connections for our portfolio from the Vail chairlift. So hopefully that time will yield some professional dividends as well. And I've been spending some time trying to get a diagnosis for some longstanding health issues and figured out that I have this eight centimeter, luckily benign cyst, which hopefully is causing some of the issues that I'm experiencing. So I'm going to have that out June 3rd. And if all goes well, that'll be a pretty straightforward surgery. So I'm thinking my life is going to go back to quote unquote normal shortly after that. And that concludes my excessive overshare and leads me to my final update and the whole reason why I invited you here today. 
I've been spending more time than I would like recently on our fund administration and reporting. And part of the reason for that is because one of the most important lessons that I've learned in venture capital is that most startup investments last longer than the average marriage. And I've been investing for 10 years now, and I'm still dealing with some of the fund administration decisions that I made back in 2011. And I've made some easily avoidable administration mistakes. So I'm just going to share some of those lessons. And then I'm going to invite you guys, our forum members, to share your thoughts as well. So listeners, if you're not familiar, I run a forum for VC fund managers called Fund81. And you can go to Fund81, that's F-U-N-D 81.com to learn more. But the first of my easily avoidable administrative mistakes is that I opted to host our fund entity bank accounts at a couple different community banks because I love what community banks do. I wanted to support our community. But in the 10 years since I've managed those funds, one of the community banks has been acquired three times and another has changed their online banking system six times. And this may seem like a small thing, but it just caused a bunch of time-sucking headaches. So I now recommend that housing all of your personal and professional accounts in one national big bank to keep everything streamlined will just save you a ton of time. And I also recommend asking your fund administrator and anyone else who's gonna interact with your accounts, which bank they are most familiar with to limit their learning curve as well. I've learned that special purpose vehicles are more hassle than I anticipated. So a lot of funds form special purpose vehicles to make investments in their existing portfolio companies after their fund is closed, et cetera. And, and these can be great ways to increase the amount of capital that you deploy. But as I've learned, they can cause some unexpected headaches. So I started my career as an angel investor, angel investing my own capital. And then I started pooling my capital with other angel investors through these special purpose vehicles. So I had about a dozen of these that I volunteered to manage. And it's relatively painless to set these entities up. And it should be relatively painless to just file a tax return each year, which is really all you need to do. However, when you think about a potential 10 plus year lifespan of an entity, stuff just comes up. Investors get divorced and have to split their assets. Investors die and leave their LP interests to spouses or children who know nothing about startup investing. You might be asked to make really important decisions on the investor's behalf eight years after you made the investment. And you can outsource the management of these SPVs, but that causes longevity-induced headaches as well. So for instance, I've held one SPV for about eight years, and in that time, I've had five different account managers assigned to me from this outsourced solution. 
And every time we've onboarded a new account manager, it's just taken some time for me. And these headaches can definitely be worthwhile in many cases. But if you think about setting them up, I would just make sure that the incentives will be worthwhile. And I'd recommend charging ample carry in exchange for management and making sure that the investment offers enough potential upside to outweigh not just the administrative costs, which costs typically about $8,000 across the life of the fund, but also the time and heartburn of unforeseen headaches. And the last lesson that I'll share regarding my transition from an angel to a VC is that I had no idea that my angel investing track record would be so scrutinized when I went out to raise a VC fund. I viewed my angel investing as a way to learn how to actually be a VC on my own dime. And I made some not so promising small investments because I thought they'd be good learning experiences or would help me build some important relationships. I remember when we went to our first meeting with an institutional VC to pitch our current VC fund, the first two questions out of their mouth was, so what's the TBPI and DPI of your angel portfolio? And then the next one was, so tell me the best and worst outcomes of your angel portfolio. That completely took me by surprise. And that leads me to my next tip to proactively rather than reactively track portfolio metrics. Doing that both for your VC fund and for your angel investments. I grossly underestimated how much time it would take to reactively collect metrics from portfolio companies. So now before I sign any investment paperwork, I make sure that at a minimum, we've recorded the metrics we've determined to be the most important. And for equity rounds, that's simply pre and post money valuation and the numbers of shares purchased, and then our ownership percentage. And we set up a reminder for two weeks after the round closes to confirm how much money the company actually raised. So we make sure that our ownership percentage is correct. Because for whatever reason, it is harder, I've found, than it should be to get accurate cap tables from startups. So just make sure to get that information up front. And then for convertible debt rounds, we make sure that we have the interest rate and the mechanics of the conversion of that debt recorded and the maturity date. And ideally, we like to invest in convertible notes that automatically convert. But when that's not possible, we make sure to set a reminder 30 days prior to the maturity date so we can remind founders to extend those notes if needed. I was recently reminded of the importance of this because one of the companies that we invested in through convertible debt is doing really well, but they've decided to hold off on raising capital and their maturity date was coming up and they were sort of dragging their feet to extend that maturity date. And coincidentally, they got a really attractive offer to be acquired. They ended up not taking that offer. And I'm confident that the CEO would have done the, the right thing and would have done right by their investors regardless. But it just reminded me of the importance of making sure that those maturity dates are 
recorded and extended if needed, because you could really be left up a creek if an acquisition or financing happens after that maturity date has passed. And for all investments, we make sure to track co-investors in the round, both because it's helpful to know in your corner and also because LP care a lot about the quality of your co-investors. Then we have a slew of other metrics that we really like to know from the onset and then over the course of the investment, like the number of employees, their diversity metrics, burn rate, churn rate, et cetera. But my experience is that it's easier to get this information from some founders than from others. And we have a good relationship with nearly all of our portfolio companies, but in full transparency, it's like pulling teeth to get consistent information from some of our companies. And we've just decided that it isn't worth the brain damage in some cases. So we've taken the approach of sending out a quarterly survey with five required questions and about 10 optional questions. When we communicate our reporting expectations before we invest and then offer consistent support to our companies, then our response rate goes up significantly. And I'd recommend spending some time to think through what metrics you want to track and report over time. I was a lot more bullish about tracking a lot of nice to have metrics when we had 10 investments versus now that we have 49 companies in our merge lane portfolio, not to mention the close to 50 angel investments that I have personally that I track. And the level of detail provided and the types of metrics tracked by VC funds seems to be all over the board. And that leads me to my next suggestion. I highly recommend investing in other VC funds as a way to learn. At a minimum, if that's not possible, I recommend reviewing a handful of other funds reports to their LPs before determining the level of detail and the types of metrics that you want to report to your LPs. I'll include some of our reporting templates in the show notes and Maybe some of our forum members would be willing to share theirs as well. But we decided to dedicate a portion of our current merge lane fund to invest in other VC funds and have learned a ton in that process. But there's three things to think about before you consider that approach. So first and foremost, there's the double fee issue. So we decided to reduce our carry percentage and management fee to counterbalance the fund fees. For us, the learning, the deal flow, the portfolio diversification has all made it worth it, but it's certainly something to think about because it, it, it's a pretty significant financial decision. Also, if your allocation to funds is equal or greater than 20% of your overall portfolio at any point in time, then your fund will be considered a fund of funds and will be subject to all sorts of reporting and compliance requirements and expenses. And this can be a little tricky to manage with fund capital calls. So for instance, if you make one $100,000 startup investment and then make a $100,000 commitment to a fund, you will be in the clear if the fund only calls $19,999 until you make another investment. 
but you'll be in trouble if they call $20,000. So you just have to sort of manage your investment pacing to pay attention to that. And small thing, but you also will need to wait until all of your fund investments issue their K-1s to issue your funds K-1s to your LPs. We just didn't think about this when we deployed this investing in funds strategy. And um, this year we had to delay our K-1 delivery to RLPs. And it really irked RLPs actually more than I expected. A few more notes on K-1s. So I've learned that the longer we wait to deliver all of our stuff to our accounting team, then the further behind we fall in the line with their other clients. So now we try to get everything that we can to them the first week of January. And when something like a K-1 from one of your fund investments delays the process, I've now learned to make absolutely sure that they have everything else that they need to process the return before whatever you're waiting for arrives. We were delayed a full week after we finally got those K-1s from our funds this year because our accounting and fund administration team had different opinions on how some expenses should be allocated. Uh, that leads me to my next lesson, which is to consult your legal accounting and your fund administration teams before making any changes. I've learned this in two instances. So first we were approached by a Canadian investor who wanted to join our fund. I reached out to our accounting team to ask what would be required to accept a Canadian investor, and it seemed really straightforward. My attorney happened to be on spring break, and the investor was about to head off the grid, so I really just wanted to close that deal. And I thought, oh, it's just Canada. How complicated can it be? <laughs> so we got her to sign the docs and wire the money. She went off the grid on vacation for three weeks. And then when I talked to our attorney, we learned that accepting a Canadian investor isn't complicated, but Canadian investors are required to pay pretty hefty fees for their compliance. And in this instance, the investor was planning to invest $100,000 and those fees were going to completely kill her ROI. So we had to go back after she came back from vacation and said, actually, we need to send you back your money. It was sort of embarrassing. Lesson learned. And then I recently learned this again because our fund administrator suggested that we make some changes when we onboarded them. And we made those changes and it seemed pretty straightforward. And we started reporting with those changes made. And then when it got to the time that we were going to file our tax returns, our accountant made some pretty good arguments on why we should not have made those changes. And it delayed a bunch of things to our LPs and it was just a big headache. So every time I make a change, I now ask my attorney, my fund administrator and our accounting team. And that has helped to just really move the process along. We would have saved a ton of time had we engaged a fund administrator before we started reporting to our LPs and before we finalized any of our legal docs. To give you a little background on our trajectory, I started as an angel, started pooling angel investments together to make some small investments through special purpose vehicles. 
then joined forces with my partner and we raised some small funds totaling about two and a half million for the first generation of Merge Lane. And it didn't really make sense to have a fund administrator for any of those things because a traditional fund administrator, from my experience, costs a minimum of $30,000 a year over the course of a 10-year fund. So if you raise $2.5 million, the economics of that just don't work. So we did all the management and reporting ourselves, which was a good learning experience, but it takes a lot of time. And I'm still dealing with that today. For the next fund that we raised, it was a little bit more nuanced because we raised $4 million. So then we could justify about $30,000 a year. And we raised that fund from more professional investors, many of whom had close personal relationships with us, but still had a little bit higher reporting expectations than the LPs that we first worked with. But to save money, we waited until we actually raised that $4 million to engage a fund administrator. It's actually kind of hard to find a good fund administrator that's available. So we had to wait a little bit longer to onboard that fund administrator. So all to say, we did a few things before actually engaging the fund administrator. And we learned a few lessons in that process. The most sort of embarrassing of which was that we had promised some reporting and compliance procedures to our LPs in our limited partner agreement. And when we onboarded that fund administrator, they said, well, these processes make sense for a lot of funds, but not so much for your fund <laughs> because the cost of actually complying with what you promised is going to really cut into your ROI that you can deliver to investors. So luckily, we were able to go back to our investors and get approval to waive those requirements, but it made us look, shall I say, less than sophisticated. Not ideal. So if you're raising a fund of 10 million or more, I think it's a no-brainer to engage a fund administrator from the minute you start raising that fund. And if you aren't in a position to do that, then I think just consulting advisors, talking to other funds as much as you can. One thing to particularly watch out for if you're a smaller fund is whether or not to do an annual audit. That really increases the costs. And then the other thing is whether or not to adhere to gap accounting. That also increases the cost significantly. And that leads me to my final and perhaps the most important point that I want to make today which is that you can spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to ensure that your fund administration is perfect. However, at the end of the day, you're going to be measured by the return on investment that you deliver, not on the perfection of your fund administration. And this is hard for me to accept as a perfectionist, because even as I was preparing for this talk, it was really... <laughs> giving me heartburn thinking about all the mistakes that I've made and had to admit to. I'll just give one example. So uh, when we were in the process of onboarding that fund administrator, we had to do our capital account statements ourselves. And as I said, I've sourced a lot of our LPs from the chairlift at Vail and brought on this particular gentleman who became a self made billionaire by becoming a bit of an institution 
in the financial world. So he really knew financials and um, he is an LP and Greylock and all these very reputable funds, but decided to go out on a limb and make an investment that was more of an administrative headache for him than, than a significant investment because we had this small fund because he wanted to support me. And, and we had built a relationship on the chairlifts at Vale. And I wanted to make sure that his capital account statement was done correctly. So I did it myself instead of having my assistant do it, who was helping me with them. And I made a stupid typo mistake because sometimes you check things three times, but your eyes see what you think that that should be on the piece of paper rather than what is. And we reported that they had invested $75,000 less than what we they actually had invested. And so the head of his family office sent me this nasty gram email and CC'd him on the email that we were so careless about how much money they had actually invested. And it was so embarrassing. And I, I still cringe when I think about it. But I politely explained that we, you know, had waited to onboard a fund administrator to save costs, which actually saved us $75,000 on a $4 million fund. That's kind of significant. And I hope that if we deliver 100X on his investment, that they will forget about that mistake. So all to say, and in all of this, you know, just think about one, is the time that you're spending on fund administration pulling you away from the return on investment that you could be delivering? And two, are you choosing LPs that are in line with the approach that you want to take? Because that LP in that instance, you know, was fairly accepting of the mistake and others would not be so accepting. So with that, I will conclude and open it up to you guys. Question or comments? I just want to say first, thank you for sharing all that because, you know, I'm not currently managing a fund. And if I stay in this career, I will eventually be doing exactly what you were doing. So all of that is much appreciated as a heads up. Oh, well, thanks. Because I'd love for us all to get to know each other a little bit better. Do you want to quickly introduce yourself? Sure. My name's James. I'm a principal at Boulder Ventures, which is a longtime well-established venture capital firm in Boulder, Colorado. As such, I have no need to input on our fund administration. It's been established for years. And so learning about how other funds do it is, uh, has been particularly enlightening. I've been with the fund about two years in solely an investment role rather than any kind of fund management. So this is fairly new to me. Hmm. Well, um, coincidentally, some of those embarrassing mistakes that I made involved your boss. I made a couple of mistakes <laughs> that affected him. So you could ask him about some of the mistakes to avoid. <laughs> well, you know, on that point, since you brought him up and the fund of funds aspect of your own fund and the headaches that caused our GPs are invested in other VC funds for exactly the reason that you were talking about, which is seeing how other people do things, but they do it individually rather than through the fund, probably to save exactly those headaches. Yeah. I think that's, you know, a good way to, to do it, definitely. And I've done that as well. I'm actually an, an investor on some of the funds on this call. 
but I also think that there's some benefits from doing it through the fund because we have found that some of the, the deal flow and also just some of the relationship building has been a little bit stronger when we've institutionalized the relationship versus when I've done it as an individual LP. Also, you know, you get immediate portfolio diversification when you invest in other funds. So it's allowed us to be a little more narrow in the direct investments that we make so we can really focus our time on fewer companies. Sure. When I mentioned that I was going to do this event, Jenny actually sent me a question that I think is worth bringing up. Jenny, do you remember that question or do you want me to remind you? <laughs> I, I do remember. Uh, thank you, Elizabeth. And I'm, I'm, I'm grappling with it every day. So I'm, I'm happy to, to share it and get your and others' thoughts. Uh, I'll first say, you know, Echo, James, thanks. This is really great to get to talk about this topic in a transparent and vulnerable way. And I really appreciate you setting the tone uh, as usual, Elizabeth, for, for great sharing and learning from each other. My name is Jenny Rook. I'm the founder and managing director of Genoa Ventures, San Francisco-based venture capital firm that invests in early stage companies innovating at the convergence of biology and technology. We're in our fourth year. So I started the firm at the beginning of 2018. We fully invested uh, and reserved the first fund and are raising and investing the second. I had a lot of good advice before sort of going into it. So uh, had a, a, a great back office, I would say, in terms of components, uh, working with you know, national bank partner, as you suggested, Elizabeth, fund administration, already had an EA I was working with, so that was really helpful, so I wasn't calendaring all the time. So there were a lot of great components, and I certainly couldn't have done it without all of those wonderful service providers as partners in building the business. And yet, I still find that I spend a lot of my time managing all of that. They don't manage themselves. <laughs> and so I'm wondering how to take that load of managing across all of the back office, as well as, and this, this could be in addition or separate role, the, the kind of fund reporting that you were quite rightly calling out as as challenging and um, really can take quite a lot of time even to get the metrics much less uh, you know, a, a thoughtful write-up about where all the companies are. So a uh, so question to the, to the group is, when does it make sense or what are some solutions for having a person sort of in-house with the Genoa badge or hat on who has um, responsibility and accountability for managing kind of the operations and, and finance aspects? I think having learned the hard lesson that fund administration is not the same as having a finance person. <laughs> so that's, that's where I'm at. Hmm. Yeah. I'm curious to hear if there's any thoughts from the group, but I'll just share a few things that we've tried. So I've also experienced that having to manage the people who are supposed to be managing things. I have two different amazing executive assistance. One has access to, I don't know, all of our secure information because we've worked with her long en enough and have enough background to feel comfortable with that. And so she is responsible for 
making sure that that everybody's sort of on the same page um, and helps with that. And then the other thing, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, is just making sure that the accounting fund administration and legal team are all on the same page. So we recently had this issue where now the IRS changed their requirements for disregarded entities. That That's not important for this example, but our accounting team worked with us and, and with my executive assistant so we could reduce costs to actually collect all that information. I thought we had told our fund administration team that, but maybe I didn't, or maybe it got lost in translation. And then they reached out, out again to all of our LPs to ask them for that information. So the RLPs had to go through the exercise twice. And so I've now requested that they CC me and our executive assistant on any correspondence that they're going to do to our LPs to make sure that we're not doing anything duplicate. And in that process, I've figured out that sometimes they've asked our LPs to deliver things and things that maybe weren't as easy as they should be for our LPs. So that's helped. And I've given my executive assistant some authority to speak up anytime she sees anything that that could be improved upon. But we have not gone as far as having an in-house finance person. I'm curious if there's anybody on the call who has. Hey, Elizabeth, this is John. Hi, John. I haven't used an in-house person, uh, as you know, but you know, I'm involved with about 11 other funds, and a couple of them do use in-house people. And uh, I, I think maybe a recommendation before it looks like the economics for your fund suggests that you can have an in, in-house person, or it makes sense, that uh, you really think long and hard about it. Uh, you know, fund accounting not just accounting, but administration is, uh, it's, it's actually really tough. And it's hard for a, an accountant to be a good match, or it's hard for a, a tax person to be a great match or an attorney to be a great match. It, you really want that experience base in there. And then secondly, um, if you're going to go and hire an individual, uh, you do your due diligence really well. There are people out there that, uh, kind of drop in and are individual contributors to a fund as a, in the form of administrator. And from what I've seen, uh, GPs do lightweight due diligence. They get one or two references from other GPs. And it's not clear at all that they're spending time with LPs that have been essentially customers of those fund administrators. And that that's come around to, to bite people. And it's really a kind of an unforced error um, that could be avoided if you spend more time on the due diligence side. You know, be real careful, find somebody that's experienced and that your LPs already have known, worked with, and are happy with. Thanks, John. That's good advice. John, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So uh, my name's John Ives. I'm a single member GP of a fund called Tahoma Ventures, which was uh, originally based in Boulder. And uh, Elizabeth and I go back many years. Um, we've actually, Kate and I, my wife and I have actually kind of followed Elizabeth to Eagle County in Colorado. So I'm calling you from, uh, Eagle, Colorado, uh, this morning. Um, Tahoma is, uh, I have, there's actually two funds in the complex, a small seed stage fund 
uh, that invests primarily in infrastructure seed stage companies. It's a, a now a nine-year fund, and so I'm starting to think about end-of-life liquidity events, secondary sales, uh, some of the, the uh, longer-term housekeeping things that Elizabeth mentioned earlier on the front end. But I, I as a as a single-member GP, I highly leverage all the infrastructure that uh, my fund administrator provides. And it's been a, a great way to set up my first one, now two funds. John and I actually use the same fund administrator, which is CFO Fund Services in Colorado. And I highly recommend them. And John, you actually reminded me of a mistake that you caught that I made recently that, that tie into this topic. So John is a LP in one of the funds that we did that was in the first generation of MergeLine when it didn't make sense to have a professional fund administrator. And so I managed the reporting for all of that and uh, recently sent out an annual report, which my executive assistant then helped me to proof and check my math and everything. But there was one thing on there where I meant to say total value of the fund. And I said, uh, total assets, which is a totally different calculation. John noticed that maybe things weren't added up correctly. And, and I noticed that. And, and the lesson that I learned there is, you know, you can have a great executive assistant who can check most things, but they're not going to catch things like that. So having somebody that really does understand the business is obviously helpful. And hopefully, like I said before, if I can deliver twice as much of a return on investment because we cut our fund administration costs, John will forgive me on that mistake. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, uh, you know, another layer of complexity in fund administration, you kind of touched on, on what the Canadian LP, but uh, you know, I have one European LP and fortunately he's a, a friend from grad school and is is pretty flexible, forgiving, what have you. Uh, but just the the layer of tax related complexity that adding just that one incremental international LP was is, is amazing. And you know, we, meaning myself and the fund administrator, kind of try to find creative ways to lower the pain level of, of supporting that LP. And one of the low hanging fruit processes or or structural things that we did for him was essentially called all of his capital on day one. Hmm. And so we created a, a separate account at our bank that is uh, excess contributions, put his you know, full capital contribution into that account. And then we draw out of it uh, as we do capital calls. And you know that's reduced a, a lot of the transactional costs of supporting him. And it's actually turned out in the long term to be a, a, a good tool to use for uh, your smaller LPs as we get closer to 60, 70, 80% of the capital committed. And you know they're looking at, hey, I've only got $5,000 left of, of uh, committed capital. I want to do some traveling. Um, how can we reduce the burden to Homa or John? And we did something similar there where people are just starting to send their remaining capital commitment to us and we'll draw against it as opposed to continuing to bother them as we get to year 9, 10, 11, and 12. Oh, thanks. That's good info. One thing that we didn't touch on that might be on people's minds is a lot of folks are using services like 
Carta or Assure Services to reduce their fund administration fees. And I'd be curious to hear whether any of you guys have had success with that. I've recently come in to a few issues with some special purpose vehicles that I outsourced. I won't name the name of the vendor because I know that they're working on these headaches. But through that, what it's made me realize is that with the explosion of things like syndicates on angel lists, et cetera, those vendors have gotten much more busy than they anticipated. In one particular instance, that vendor told me that they weren't going to be able to deliver K-1s until September of this year. And my response time from my account managers has been extremely slow. So I would just do some diligence. I think sometimes things seem a little bit too good to be true. And in some cases, they are a little bit too good to be true, unfortunately. And I think as the industry matures, these things will get better. But right now, we may be at the point where the bandwidth of some of those vendors has just really been extended too far. I'll, I'll add to that. Uh, but it does go back to a comment you made earlier about or LPs not necessarily choosing funds to invest in based off of back office. There are some service providers that if I find that a new fund opportunity or SPV is going to use them, I'll just walk away. Uh, they're, they're just, some of these people are just too hard to deal with and both from a quality and process perspective. So a lot of the folks that kind of aggregate a lot of SPV business um, or try to do the, a lot of online infrastructure, to me, it's kind of boiled down to, hey, these guys have a track record of poor performance. And if the GP is going to select them, that's representative, in my opinion, of a poor decision-making on the GP and maybe a, a red flag, at least a yellow flag, but concerning enough that uh, I'll walk away. Would you share Thanks, which ones you're not happy with? I'm happy to do that if I pause the recording. All right, we're back after we pause that recording. And if you'd like to hear some inside information like I just shared, then join our forum. You can apply and learn more at fund81.com. That's F-U-N-D-81.com. And with that, we're going to conclude this session. Thank you all for listening. Until next time. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, please take a minute to share this episode or rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more and to apply for the Fund 81 VC Forum, check out fund81.com. That's F-U-N-D-8-1.com. Until next time.